Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We uh, started, uh, we taught through the first um, half of uh, chapter 11. Now we're going to look at the second half this morning. Every once in a while when I'm preparing a message, it's like the Lord just kind of gives me a theme and, and sometimes I don't, but you know, I kind of, there's a theme in there obviously um, in scriptures. But uh, this, mo- or this morning, uh, you know, just there's a theme that came to me for this, the rest of this chapter. And the theme is this, and you think you got it bad. <laughs> So we'll be taking a look at that. So if you came in this morning and you think you've got it bad, I I pray that you're encouraged by the time you leave when you realize just uh, what Paul went through as uh, as an apostle in his life and in his ministry. So let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. We are so thankful, Lord God, for um, your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given us, Lord, to comfort us to instruct us. Lord, you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, what a comfort that is for those of us that have put our trust in you for our salvation. Lord, that no matter what we go through, Lord, you are there with us. And so we thank you for that. Lord, this morning, as we study your word, I pray that you might fill me with your spirit. Lord, as I share your word with your people, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to begin with verse 21, which is actually where we left off last week. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 21, Paul says this, To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. And if you want to know what that was, you'll have to listen to last week's message because I won't go over that again. But But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. So Paul here is dealing with false apostles, false teachers that had come into Corinth after Paul had left the church, uh, going on to do other missionary work. And uh, they came behind Paul and they were claiming that they were just as good as Paul, uh, maybe even better than Paul. He's not really an apostle. And they were introducing some false teachings into the church in Corinth. And so Paul is addressing that in this chapter. And, you know, if we were to just read through this chapter, it would seem like, man, Paul's really boasting. And in a way, Paul is going to boast here in a sense. But he hates to do it. It's not his heart to boast about himself. Have you ever been around somebody that likes to talk about themselves? It's kind of funny, right? You, 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 you know, you start talking about yourself and pretty soon they've got a story that's better than your story. And uh, they just, it's amazing. I used to work with a guy in uh, California years ago on a graveyard shift. and Not on a graveyard, but in a graveyard shift. And uh, anyways, this one guy, um, you know, you could tell any kind of story and he would come up with, one up on you. And so one of my coworkers, he was getting sick and tired of it. So he made up this fantastic story that was just like unbelievable. And guess what? The other guy had one better than that. <laughs> but you know, some people like to boast. Paul did not like to boast. It wasn't about him. And so here he's feeling like he has to, he's been forced to because these apostles or these false apostles are saying how good they are and how bad Paul is. And so Paul says, um, you know, I speak, if if anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. See, he doesn't even want to say it. I am bold also. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Paul says some interesting things here based on what the false apostles were saying about uh, Paul. First of all, he says, are they Hebrews? And it almost seems like, it seems like he's saying redundant things, but he's really not. When he says, are they Hebrews? That's speaking about the nationality of the Jewish race. A Hebrew in Paul's day described a Jew who still spoke the ancient Hebrew um, dialect or language in its Aramaic form because they spoke in the Aramaic at that time. But so so a, a, a Hebrew was someone who still retained the old Hebrew language and could speak it. 
Um, even before the destruction, because this takes place before 70 AD, obviously, um, before the dispersion of the Jews, they went all, all over the world. But even before that, there were Jews all over the world. In fact, in Paul's day, there was about one million Jews in Alexandria, Egypt at this time. And uh, many of the Jews that had been dispersed into other regions, um, they, had, uh, they had basically forgotten their native tongue and they spoke Greek because Greek was the common language in the Roman Empire. But the Jews in Palestine, they were like the Orthodox guys. You know, they were the ones that had preserved their native tongue. And so in pride, they would look down on any Jew that didn't speak native Hebrew. And so this is what they're inferring. Paul, they're basically saying, you know, Paul grew up, he's, he's in a Roman province. You know, Paul is basically, he's not really a full Hebrew. He doesn't speak the Hebrew language. Well, Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I, because Paul still did speak the native Hebrew. Then, they, then he says, are they Israelites? Now, that's another aspect of being a Jewish person. An Israelite refers to the theocracy of Israel. In other words, God is leading Israel. In fact, Paul will even mention it in Romans 9, verse 4. He talks about Israelites. He says, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. An Israelite described a Jewish person who was a member of God's chosen people. And that's what's being referred to here. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is what is known as the Shema. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That Shema, that, that verse is known as a Jewish prayer. It's the, basically the centerpiece of every morning and evening prayer that the Jewish people did. When a synagogue service was opened, it was opened with the Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, Paul's modus operandi, I had to look it up. I've, I've used the word before. I'm like, I got to look it up. Yeah, it fits. Um, his operating procedure, what he did normally, whenever he would go into a city, the first thing he would do is he'd go to a synagogue. He would worship with the Jews in the synagogue. He would start sharing about Jesus Christ. And if they, if they received the message and if they were open to it, he would continue but quite often, they were closed off. In fact, they'd get very angry. We'll talk about that later. And so at that point, Paul would go to the, to the Gentiles. Now, we don't know if Paul would, there's no indication that after he was rejected from the Jewish people that he would go back to the synagogue. So it could quite possibly be that one of the accusations is, hey, Paul's hanging out with Greek people, Gentiles. He's not even, he's not even attending synagogue. He forgets that he's an Israelite. Paul says, are they Israelites? So am I. Then he says this, are they the seed of Abraham? The seed of Abraham. That is another aspect of being a Jewish person. That's a claim to be a part in the Messiah. The seed of Abraham refers to being a direct descendant of Messiah, a direct heir of the great promise, not a direct descendant of Abraham, a direct heir of the promise of the coming Messiah. And that's based in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Jewish people understood what that meant. That's referring to the coming Messiah. In the seed of Abraham, the Messiah would come. And so these guys are saying, is Paul really the seed of Abraham? Paul says, are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. You see, Paul was a Hebrew, he was an Israelite, and he was the seed of Abraham in spades, in fact. In Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6, Paul says this. He's talking about himself. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul's probably thinking, I wonder how many of these false apostles were actually Pharisees before they came to the Lord, faith in the Lord, or if they even came to faith in the Lord. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was orthodox of the orthodox of the Jewish people. They were the ones that kept the law of the Lord, kept the law of the Torah, faithfully 
to the minutest detail. And so Paul says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, of course, we know and Paul learned that you can't be righteous through keeping the law. You know, we're sinners. We need to be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. But concerning any kind of righteousness based on the law, Paul was, Paul was a pretty straight dude. He was a, he was a, he was a Pharisee of her, Pharisees. In verse 23, he continues, Are they ministers of Christ? And again, he's just, he hates bringing this up. He says, I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Paul says, are they ministers of Christ? Now, earlier, remember, he said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are the seed of Abraham? So am I. Now he says, are they ministers of Christ? He says there in verse 23, I am more. So in other words, I'm even more of a servant of Christ than these guys who claim to be. Well, how can someone be more of a minister of Christ, more than somebody else? That sounds kind of boastful, doesn't it? What is a minister? The word in the Greek means someone who executes the commands of another, especially of a master. So in other words, you're in the position of a slave and you're serving a master. I guess you can't really say that in this, in this uh, culture. I'm sorry. Someone, I don't even know how to rephrase it, but you know what I mean, what I'm referring to. Um, it's someone who's a servant, an attendant, or even, even can refer to a table waiter. You know, somebody who, they, they're not eating, they're watching you eat, they're making sure you have your cup of water or coffee or whatever you're drinking. You know, you have lots of refills, they watch you. You know, if you need anything, they come over, can I help you, can I do anything? They take your plate away from you, they bring you your, you know, your appetizer. They're waiting on you. That's what Paul says, I'm a minister, I'm waiting on the Lord, I'm serving the Lord more than these other guys. Well, that sounds kind of boastful. Well, Paul in the rest of this chapter is going to expound and he's going to build on that, that, that he is more of a minister. And I think as we go through that, we'll see that Paul was more of a minister of Christ. He says in labors, more abundant. The word means toil. And it's really not so much referring to the labor itself, the work that you do, you know, however hard a work it is. It refers to actually the, the exertion that's, that's spent. It's, it's how much, how weary you get from the labor that you're doing. And if you think about Paul, not only did he do the work of a full-time ministry, uh, excuse me, a full-time missionary, right? He traveled all over uh, ministering, starting churches. He was a church planner. He was an evangelist. He did all those things. And in addition to that, wherever he went, he would work to support himself so as not to be a burden on the people he ministered to. He had a tent-making business. He would literally make tents. So Paul labored with his hands. So in labor is more abundant. More abundant means more than these guys. More in a greater degree. Really? Well, again, we'll look at that as we go through it. In stripes above measure. Now we have only some of the accounts of the stripes that Paul endured because of his faith in Christ Jesus. There was much more in the Bible than actually is, uh, uh, yeah, much more, excuse me, that is not recorded in the Bible than what is in the Bible. There's a lot of stuff that we don't even know about. And what that tells me is that there were a lot of times, maybe a lot of people didn't know what Paul was going through because he didn't like to boast about himself. He didn't have a poor me attitude. He basically, in a lot of times, he suffered alone. Only he and the Lord knew what he went through. And you can kind of compare this, and I don't know if any of you have ever been, have any, well, I don't even want to have you raise your hands, but if you've ever been beaten or somebody slugged you or, you know, somebody did something just physically painful to you because of your faith in Christ, you know, maybe you could say, well, you know, one time, went on a mission trip, and we were out in, you know, Mexico or something, and, and man, this guy came up to, I was sharing the gospel, this guy came up and cold cocked me right beside the head. You know, maybe you could say that. There was one time on this mission trip, Paul says, man, it happens to me frequently so much, I can't even count how many times it's happened to me. He specifies three Roman scourgings and five at the hands of the Jews. And again, we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail as we go through this. <clears throat> in prisons more frequently. Now, at the time of Paul's writing of 2 Corinthians, 
There's only one time that we read that he was in prison that we know of, and that was recorded in the book uh, of Acts when he, they were at Philippi, and he was in jail. Remember the Philippine, uh, Philippine, <laughs> the Philipp, the Philippian jailer came to faith in Christ. I always get those mixed up, but anyway, you know what I'm talking about. I don't think Paul ever went to Manila, but that's besides the point. Later on, we'll read about Paul being in uh, Caesarea Philippi. He'll be in prison there, um, awaiting uh, a judgment there. Uh, later on, when he writes from uh, his prison epistles from when he's in Rome, he'll be in what's known as the Mamertine prison. That's not recorded in scriptures. That's what we know historically. But at the time of this writing, the only time that Paul refers to, uh, that we know of anyways, is in Philippi. And so Paul says, there's been many times I've been in prison. You get, you get, we don't even know about it. You know, that kind of reminds me of the fact when you get to the book, end of the book of Acts, it's, it's, it's an interesting book, actually, if you've ever read the book of Acts, because you get to the end and it's, like, it's almost like it's unfinished. And the reality is it is unfinished. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, the apostles, and, and the work of the church. And, and, and it, it's, it continued after the writing of the book of Acts. In fact, it's continuing today. God is still at work in the world through you and I, his, his people. Verse 24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 40 stripes minus one. That actually is a Jewish punishment. It's based on a passage of scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses one through three. Let me read this to you. This is, describes how a person was to receive 40 stripes. 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So God said, you can't, you can't, uh, you, you can't give someone more than 40 blows. So if more than 40 blows, the scourger himself would be subject to scourging. That was the tradition. And so to play it safe, they would do 40 minus 1, 39. That way they never exceed that. So, you know, if you lose count, he's like, well, what was I on, you know? I do that when I'm like having to do push-ups or something, or not having to do. But, you know, when I'm, I'm going to do like 25 push-ups or something, and, you know, I'm like, I think that was 15. Let me go five more. Okay, I'm done, you know. Um, you would, didn't want to do that when you were scourging someone because if you went over, it'd be tr you'd be in trouble. The Mishnah. The Mishnah is the book. It's a Jewish book. It it's basically takes the law and it codifies it. And in the Mishnah, it describes how to do this punishment, uh, 40 stripes minus one. I'm going to read it to you. This describes how a person was to be scourged. They bind his two hands to a pillar on either side. And the minister of the synagogue lays hold of on his garments. If they are torn, they're torn. If they are utterly rent, they are utterly rent, so that he bears his chest. A stone is set behind him on which the minister of the synagogue stands with a strap of calf hide in his hand, doubled and redoubled, and two other stripes, a strap, excuse me, that rise and fall there too. The handpiece of the strap is one handbreadth long and one handbreadth wide, and its end must, must reach to his navel. An example is when the victim is struck on the shoulder, the end of the strap must reach the navel. In other words, it wraps around the body around the torso of the person. He may not strike him when he is standing or when he is sitting down, but only when he is bending down. And he that smites, smites with one hand and with all his might. If he dies under his hand, the scourger is not culpable. But if he gives him one stripe too many and he dies, again, there's that 40th, he must escape into exile because of him. This is what Paul's describing that he happened five times to himself. It was a scourging so severe that if a person died under the scourging, you know, a person could theoretically die from this scourging, I guess is what I mean to say. And not like you say, well, you know, I was one time on the mission field and somebody hit me. Paul says, this happened five times. Five times. Something that was so severe that he could have died from it, physically died from it. Interesting thing is not one of those is recorded in the New Testament. Things that Paul suffered, we don't even know. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have been in the deep. Three times 
I was beaten with rods. This was not a Jewish punishment. This was a Roman punishment. The attendant who would do this was called a lictor, and they would have these rods of birch wood, and that's what they would use to beat a person with rods. Now, the interesting thing is, we know in scriptures that it happened, uh, we know in Philippi, Paul was beaten um, by the Roman guards there. And the thing about that is, it should have never happened to Paul at all, because he was a Roman citizen. And it was against the law for a Roman citizen to be scourged. And they, yet they did it not once, but here Paul says three times. His constitutional rights were violated. Can you believe that? <laughs> the only one time we know is in Acts chapter 16 when he was in Philippi. What's interesting in that passage, and they don't go into detail, but it says that they laid many stripes on them. Now the Roman or the Jewish people you know, you could only do 40, and then, you know, so they only did 40 minus one, so that they never went over 40. We don't have any idea how the Romans, you know, how many they did, but Corey here says many stripes. Is that more than 40? Could have been. We know that the Romans were notoriously vicious in how they punished people. These were hardened soldiers, uh, and so um, we don't know, but it, it would have been severe. Once I was stoned, Paul says. We know that from Acts chapter 14 when he was in Lystra. At that place, they stoned Paul. They picked up stones. They, they threw them at him. They tell, and then they, they dragged him out of the city because they thought he was dead. And it says, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. So, I mean, he was beaten to the point where they actually thought he had died. They, they, he was left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked, Paul says. Now, here's a question. How many times was Paul shipwrecked? You go, Duh, it's right there, three times. Actually, four times. Why do I say that? Because at the time that this is written in 2 Corinthians, the, uh, the, the things that happened in Acts chapter 27 when Paul was shipwrecked, that didn't even happen yet. So three times already Paul had been shipwrecked. That one that we read about in the Bible is the fourth time that he was shipwrecked. That's a good question. You can stump your friends or whatever with it. He says, a night and day I have been in the deep. Now we could tend just to kind of just read over that, but for me, it kind of sinks in from a night and day he spent in the deep. I was in the Coast Guard, and uh, I was, my first um, duty station was at a small boat station, which is basically a search and rescue station on the Oregon coast. We were stationed right by the Umpqua River. I don't know if you're familiar with the Oregon coast, but that's where we were at. And uh, so we would do drills, training drills. Um, and one of the drills, and I happen to be the lucky guy that got to do this, was in the, in the Umpqua River, right? Kind of not, the river ran into the ocean, and that's known as a bar, the Umpqua River bar. That is a very treacherous location. The ships have, cra you know, have, have been lost there. People have lost their lives there many times there. Well, upstream from that, but yet close to the jetty, one of my things, I had to jump off the back of a boat and float in the middle of this river. That's, it was, must have been like low tide because it was like moving towards the ocean. I had to jump out there and just float in the water and then they would come around with a, with a rescue boat and come and pick me up. It was just practice, right? And I got to be the lucky one that got to be thrown into the river. And I remember feeling, and this was in broad daylight, and I remember floating in there going, man, I am small, this river is huge, and I'm heading right out to sea. I, I remember thinking that and it, fear, like, <gasps> you know, struck me. And of course they came around and I wasn't in there very long at all. They, they came and, and got me out of the water. So when I read this, a night and day in the, in the deep, Man, it, it, it brings back that memory. Now, daytime would be bad enough, but could you imagine being in the middle of the ocean, Mediterranean Sea, at night? You can't see the land. You don't know where you're at. You're just sitting there cl probably clinging to some floating debris. We don't know that Paul was an Olympic swimmer or anything like that. So, you know, probably just hanging on to whatever he could throughout not only a night, but a night and a day before being rescued. That's pretty severe. Verse 26, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In journeys often, 
You know, I kind of wonder, you know, Paul did so much traveling, probably more than, I'm sure, more than the average person did in the Roman Empire, at least a, a Jewish person in those days. Can you imagine how many free nights Paul would have got from all those points that he had? I wonder what was in his wallet, but anyways. <laughs> but he journeyed always. He was constantly on the go. He says, in perils of waters. Now, thinking about that, you know, probably, and he's year-round traveling, there's probably times when he had to cross a swollen stream in the rainy season, or, you know, going up north in the Lebanon and north from there into the mountains as he's going into the regions of Galatia and everything. There could have well been, you know, fast-moving floodwaters from snow melts, different things like that, that would have been treacherous, and that could have been what Paul is referring to here. In perils of robbers... Now, that was common enough in Paul's day that Jesus even used an example of a good Samaritan that was on his way and he got robbed by a bunch of people. In fact, historically, the narrow mountain passes in Galatia, which is where Paul traveled, they were notorious for robbers waiting there for somebody, you know, to, to, uh, to uh, uh, basically um, mug someone, beat them, who knows, kill them. So perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen. The Jews hated the message of Jesus Christ, the Orthodox Jews, the, the religious Jews. And so they were out to kill Paul or to silence him any way they can. In fact, in Acts chapter 23, which um, occurs later, Paul's at Jerusalem. Forty Jewish men took a vow that they wouldn't eat anything or drink anything until they killed Paul. Those guys, by the way, died of hunger, died of starvation. They must have because unless they broke their vow because they didn't kill Paul. God, God delivered him. You know, that makes me think sometimes, you ever, you ever hear of like the, the enemies of the state of Israel, that they, they hate the nation of Israel to this day. And one of the things they like to say is that we're going to wipe them off the face of the map. You know, we're going to wipe, we're going to push them off into the Mediterranean. It ain't going to happen, guys. It ain't going to happen because read the book of Revelation. Israel is in the land once more, and they'll never be driven off into the ocean. So when I hear those, I'm like, yeah, okay, you guys can say all you want, but it's not going to happen. But throughout the book of Acts, wherever Paul went, his own countrymen were trying to kill him or silence him. He says, in perils of the Gentiles. So this would have been the non-Jewish people. And we have one incident that's really detailed, and that's uh, the riot at Ephesus. Can you imagine an entire city is trying to kill you? I mean, it's just a riot. We, we, we're reading about riots that are going on uh, frequently in like Portland and other areas. This happened an entire city was at a riot because of Paul. He says, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea. Of course, like we just mentioned, the city Jews and Gentiles alike who opposed God, uh, Paul's message were out to get him. In the wilderness, not only were there robbers, but there were wild animals, and probably he was also exposed to the elements at times. Perils in the sea. Of course, drowning would be kind of one of the more obvious ones. But, you know, even later on on his fourth shipwreck, when he's, they run aground at the, at the, uh, by the island of Malta, the Roman soldiers, their plan is to kill all the prisoners so they don't escape. Paul was one of the prisoners. So not only did he have the, the, the threat of drowning in the Mediterranean Sea at that point, but they were planning to kill him as well as the rest of the prisoners. And then he says this, in perils among false brethren. You know what's interesting about that? Paul's gone through this whole list of all these things that are perils, and the last thing he mentions is false brethren. And I think it's on purpose. I think what Paul is trying to communicate is, guys, take note, I've dealt with a lot more worse things than you guys. I've dealt with it. Verse 27. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So he says in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often. Now, I'll be honest with you. For me, every once in a while, you know, maybe I'm doing ministry and I just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a visiting, well, I haven't been able to visit people in the hospital, but there have been times when in the middle of the night I got to go visit somebody in the emergency room or do things like that. Or sometimes preparing a sermon. 
you know, if, if the, the, the week or the, it's just got, you know, there's been so much crazy stuff going on and then all of a sudden it's like, man, I got to get this message prepared for Sunday. And so I, into the wee hours, sometimes overnight, preparing a message. It's happened before. There's also happened to me before where I've had deep concern about something going on at the church or something in the lives of the body of Christ, the local church. Something's going on and man, I just can't sleep. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I've got anxiousness or I'm praying about it. I'm just, it's, it's, I've got a heavy, that happens once in a while. The apostle Paul says it happens often, often. In hunger and thirst and in fastings often. You know, here Paul's traveling. He's basically, whatever he's got with him, he can eat. And, you know, uh, he's basically at the mercy of whatever God's providing for him as he's traveling around. And so these fastings, maybe with his praying and concern for people, it may have been voluntary as well as involuntary. There's, there's nothing to eat. In cold and nakedness, and I mentioned that earlier, you know, he was exposed to the extremes of, of weathers for as much as he traveled on foot, he would have he would have had to deal with the extremes in temperature, you know the extremes and you go up in the mountains it gets cold you go down in the desert it's it's hot in the daytime but it's freezing cold at night you know I mean all those things Paul endured, verse twenty eight. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the church, or all the churches. So all these things Paul says that I've just listed to you besides all this stuff. What comes upon me daily, daily is my deep concern for all the teachers. See, there are false teachers who liked to claim that they had as much authority uh, or more than Paul. They were more, you know, uh, anointed for their ministry or whatever. But the reality was there are false ministers. They were in it for themselves. Paul here is showing the heart of a shepherd, not the heart of a hireling. What's the difference? A hireling only cares while they're on the clock and only what they have to care for because you're just getting paid to do it. So you're going to do just as much as you're getting paid for. And when you're off the clock, you're off the clock. That's a hireling. That's the attitude of a hireling. Paul was a shepherd. Shepherd doesn't matter what time of day or night, what the situation is, they care. They care. and They're going to do something about it if they need to. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. And I'm sure when he's burning with indignation, it's not over the people that have done, that have fallen, you know, they've stumbled in their sin. He's not burning, oh, I can't believe you did that. I think he's burning with indignation that, man, the enemy got a hold of that person. They fell for the lies. They fell for the, the and it's just, it just bothers him. Man, I hate sin. I hate the enemy. Listen, understand this. Paul's not saying, he's not listing all the troubles above and then saying, and then, you know, those things happen and then sometimes this also happens. He's saying besides those things that I've just listed that happen often, these things happen every day. Every day, his deep concern for the church. You know, it's so often when you and I are suffering difficulties, it's so easy to become self-focused. You know, um, we want people to notice how bad things are so that they feel bad for us. So we'll, we'll kind of, we, we want to make sure that, you know, we want, we want that sympathy. We want that encouragement. So, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have that attitude. And people say, oh, what's wrong? You know, well, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, let me pray for you. Oh, we should be sharing what's going on in each other's lives and we should be praying for each other. But listen, Paul's own safety and his own comfort was second to ministering to the church, to the well-being of the people, the spiritual well-being of the people that he ministered to him. And so often I know in my own life, you know, I'm going through a difficulty. That's all I can think about. Well, Paul went through all these difficulties, but he thought about other people at the same time. That's a quality I pray that I would get more of in my life. Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. These false, treacher, false teachers, they obviously boasted about their strengths, because that's what Paul is addressing here. And they did it in order to make Paul look bad, for one thing, and to gain a following for themselves. And Paul says, hey, if I'm going to boast, 
I'm going to boast about the things concerning my infirmity. Well, what does he mean? He's not referring to a sickness, I don't believe. He's not, I'm going to boast about my sin, because who would boast about their sin? I'm shamed when I sin. Paul would have been ashamed. He wouldn't have been boasting about it. I think what Paul is referring to by his infirmity is his afflictions and his sufferings for Christ. I'm going to boast about those things. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Listen, everything that we read right now, it almost seems too much to believe, doesn't it? It's like it's, it's, like it's too incredible. Paul says, hey, before God, I'm not lying. This is the truth. I'm not exaggerating. And then we get to verses 32 and verse 33, and they almost seem to be like non sequitur, doesn't it? It's like, how does that fit? All of a sudden, he's, he's talking about all this stuff, and it's just like, it's like he just throws in these two verses. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Dem Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest, arrest me, but I was led down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. It almost doesn't seem to fit when you're reading through all this stuff. I think it does fit, though. Listen, what Paul is referring to is when he got saved. And if you know the story in the book of Acts, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul had an official letter from the high priest. The high priest was like the, the, the main guy, right? And Paul had a letter from him authorizing him to go wherever he went, and in this case going to Damascus, to find any followers of the way to take them and bring them back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and probably be martyred for their faith, to, be, to probably be killed. So Paul was on official business from the high priest in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the respect that Paul probably, you know, would get coming into, you know, as he reached, probably not with the, with the Romans, but certainly with the Jewish people, the leaders in wherever city he went into. Man, you got a letter from the high priest? Whoa, this guy's, this guy's official. Can you imagine the respect, the fear that would have been struck in the hearts of people? Here comes Paul. He would have got the royal treatment, basically. He would have got lots of attention, lots of publicity. And that's the way Paul was going to Damascus. And then you know the story. God met him on the road there, blinded him, transformed his life. Paul had to be led by the... Here's this mighty, brave, proud Paul, Saul at the time, that was his name. And yet he'd be led by the hand, guided into Damascus. Paul was transformed. He left Damascus the most humble way. Can you imagine? That's the most humble way that a proud Pharisee could leave. In hiding at night. In a basket. Not even under, you know, somebody else is lowering him out of the city. Can you imagine? That was humbling for Paul. You see, God was trying to, or starting to transform Saul into the Apostle Paul, and part of that transformation is humbling. And God does that in your and my life, too. He'll humble us. Why? Not because he's trying to crush us. God is trying to um, transform us. And all of the suffering that Paul described, God used that to transform Paul. I want to read to you out of Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, where I think Paul is getting what's happening in his life. He says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Wait a minute. I thought he, he should just say, I know, I know what it's like to be abased and I know what it's like to abound. That's not what he's saying. He says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to live in that situation. I know how to thrive in that situation. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. And you know what he learned in that? Here's the message. This is what he learned. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because you and I will get placed into situations that is beyond us. Man, I, I can't do anything about it. You get, a, you get a diagnosis for a disease. What, what do you do with that? You know, there's nothing you can do about it. You're, you're at the mercy of the doctors. And ultimately, you're at the mercy of the Lord. Lord, it's up to you whether I live or whether I die. And so going back to the title of this, and you think you got it bad. <laughs> Look what Paul endured 
to gain some perspective on what you're going through. And, and you know, I'm not minimizing anything that anybody is going through. If you're going through a difficult time, I'm not saying, yeah, you're just a lightweight, you know. Go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, then come back and talk to me. You know, I'm not, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm saying here. But I think, let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. I think, and I'm including myself in it, we're pansies when, it come, when we compare ourselves to Paul. I mean, you know, my wife tells me something sometimes when I, you know, I want a pity party or something. She says, hey, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, I can't get sympathy from her. I got to, I got to call my mom, <laughs> you know, something like that, you know, maybe I'll get sympathy from her. Um, <laughs> but seriously, let's put some perspective on the things that you and I think we're suffering. Read this and, and let's gain some pers perspective that's not the only application. I don't want to shame people into, oh, I, I can't believe, you know, I told them I, I had a, a hangnail. It was really bugging me. I, mean, I shouldn't have even brought that up. I don't want anybody to feel bad about what you're going through. That's not the only application I want you to want to leave you with. What I want to address is how God transformed Paul through his suffering. God wants to do that with you and I as well. And so there's a couple things I want to bring up here. In the, in, the, in, the, in the view or in the light of suffering. And here's the first thing I want to say. Don't fear death. Whoa, what do you mean don't fear death? I'm afraid of dying. Don't fear death if you have a believer in Jesus Christ, that is. Because I'm going to say this, and I want you to just think about it. In a sense, you are invincible until the day you die. In a sense, you're invincible. What do I mean by that? Listen... All of us, our days are numbered. There's a day when you and I are, God's, our days are numbered. There's a day when you and I are going to die. Death is pretty common for people. It happens. <laughs> so everyone's going to die unless the Lord returns before then for this church. So until that day, don't live in fear. Now, what I don't mean to say is, oh, just die. Just, hey, do stupid things, you know, take risks. Don't worry about it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't let fear paralyze you. That's what I'm trying to get across. And I think right now there's a lot of fear in our culture. Don't let it paralyze you. When I've had to tell myself this before, I've gotten fearful of things. One time, it was the very first time, and actually it's, well, no, I guess it's the second time, but the first time I've ever flown in a small aircraft. And I remember going over the Rocky Mountains in this small aircraft and, uh, man, you feel small when you're in a small airplane flying over those huge Rockies. We got right over the crest of the Rockies, and all of a sudden we lost, I think it was like 10,000 feet altitude in a very short amount of time. I felt like my stomach was in my throat. You know, I was like, oh. And uh, I'm like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Oh, I'm going to die. I don't want to go this way. And then I had to tell myself, wait a minute. If this is not my time to go, I'm not going to die. So I'm not going to sit there and be just gripped and like, you know, terrified. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Lord, if it's my time, I pray that I'm ready. <laughs> if not, I'm, you're, you've got this. And I was able to calm myself down because, hey, I, I can get into those times of panic and anxiety. So don't fear death. Listen, even when Paul was being shipwrecked, that fourth one, when the ship was crashing on the rocks offshore of Malta. Listen to what he says here, Acts 27, verse 22. And he's speaking to the crew and the captain. He says, Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that God, I believe, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told, uh, just as it's told me. However, we must run aground <laughs> on a certain island. So we're going to crash, but we're not going to die. God has your and my life in his hands. Don't be afraid of death, okay? Don't be afraid. Now, again, doesn't mean don't, don't, don't go out and do stupid things. I'm going to go stand out on the highway and, you know, I'm invincible. <laughs> You'll find out pretty quick you're not. But <laughs> don't let fear paralyze you. So that's the first point. Don't fear death. Here's another thing that I think we can get out of this, too. Even if you're suffering alone, you're not suffering alone. 
even though nobody knows. And maybe, you know, sometimes there's things that you and I suffer. They're really personal things. And, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to ask prayer for it because, you know, it's something that's it's so sensitive. I, I can't ask for prayer. I just have to deal with it by myself. And there's there's things that are like that. I want to encourage you if you're suffering alone, you're not suffering alone. You know, so much of what Paul described here, like I said, we have a few instances that we can go, oh, yeah, I, I can see this happen in Paul's life. But more of the things that he described, we don't even have a record of. And yet he endured it, but not alone. I like what he said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 through 18. This, by the way, is his last epistle before, again, it's not in the, recorded in the Bible, but for what we believe was that he was beheaded at that, after this in Rome. But in 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18, this is his last letter that he's writing to the beloved Timothy. He says, at my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May be not charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So even if you are suffering and you think you're suffering alone, you're not suffering alone. God's with you. He's promised to never leave nor forsake us. He's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. You're not alone in your suffering. The next thing, and this is, I think, a, 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 a hard thing sometimes. Keep an eternal perspective in your suffering. Keep an eternal perspective. Back when we were in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read this to you. Verse 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You think of all the stuff that Paul went through, and he calls it my light momentary affliction. Why? Because he had an eternal perspective. That's why he could say in Philippians 3, verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. No matter what I'm going through, I'm just pressing on. The next thing I want to leave with you is dig deep roots. Dig deep roots. In Acts chapter 20, Paul was heading to Jerusalem, and uh, he's meeting with different people, and uh, he's meeting with the elders of Ephesus at this point, and he's, he's talking to them. Someone's prophesied that uh, Paul is going to uh, be imprisoned when he gets to Jerusalem. I mean, it's a prophecy. It's going to happen. And Paul says something that's interesting here. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22 through 24, he says, and see... Now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How could Paul say, hey, no matter what this happens in my life, none of these things move me? Because of what he wrote in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Let me ask you this rhetorically. If everything was stripped away from you, where would you be? Listen, everything was stripped away from Paul at different times. And yet there was one thing that could never be stripped away from him and cannot be stripped away from us. And that's our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's true for you and true for I, for me. So what is your root? Is your, is your root in your, you know, your health, your social people around you, you know, your career? What if all that stuff stripped away from you? Does that mean I'm nothing? No. You still have Jesus Christ no matter what. Dig your roots deep in him 
Because when the storms of life, and they do come, when they come, they won't destroy you. You'll have that firm foundation in your faith in Christ. And then finally, endure. Endure. It's kind of a hard thing. It's like, okay, just deal with it. Endure, you know. But that's so true. Listen to what Paul said in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verses 8 through 12. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. How many of you are perplexed right now? I can't believe it. I don't know what's true with all the things, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in us, in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Stripping away everything, but not our faith in Christ, not our relationship with Christ. And God is sometimes allows you and I to go through things to minister to people around us. The people look at us and go, man, how can that person endure? How, how can they deal with what's going on? God's using you as a testimony for people that are watching your life. 2 Timothy verses 2 through 10, or verse 10, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Listen, endure. Hang in there. You're going through a tough time. You're not alone. In fact, we'll pray for you. I love you. You know, let me know what's going on. We'll pray for you. We'll lift you up in prayer for sure. But I want you to know you're not alone. I want to encourage you to endure. Why? Because I want you and I want myself to be able to say this at the end of our lives. And this is my last verse here, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. What a, what a thing for you and I to go through. And, and Paul, this is what Paul literally said. And all these things that he endured, God was using it to transform him. His faith in Christ was strong. And at the end he said, you know what? I endured. I hung in there. I fought that good fight. I pray that that would be true for each and every one of us. Let me go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for those that have, are watching the live stream broadcast. Lord, for those that are here in the sanctuary listening, for those that are maybe will catch the, the service afterwards. Lord, you know what they're going through. And Lord, life is not easy. Life is tough. Life is hard, but God, you're good and you're faithful. And you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, the things that we go through, the difficult suffering that we go through, Lord, I pray that it would not be wasted, but that, Lord, you would use it in our lives to humble us, to increase our trust and our faith in you, Lord, to transform us to be more like you. And so I would pray that for each and every person, Lord. And Lord, for those that are dealing with some difficult things right now, strengthen them, I pray, Lord God. Help them to endure, Lord. Fill them with your spirit, I pray. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.